Right now, let's hear from CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. The giving season is well underway, so let's talk about charitable giving, what it means for your taxes, and how has it changed this year? It's kind of back to where it was. So I have to remind everybody that before COVID, there was a big tax law change, 2017-2018, which meant that giving money to charity did change. Why? Because in order to claim a deduction, you had to be an itemizer of your deductions. And with the tax law change, what happened was we had a big expansion of what the standard deduction was. That means that, you know, all those categories that you used to add up, like charitable giving and state income tax and uh, mortgage interest, it had to add up to more than the standard deduction, which for a single person this year is $13,850 for married filing jointly. It's 27700 And what that essentially meant was that more people we're going to be filing with the standard deduction. The standard deduction is really a, makes your, your filing so much easier. And frankly, there's only about 10% of taxpayers who itemize. And this is important for charitable because in order to get any tax benefit from your charitable giving, you have to be an itemizer. Right. And you have to be giving more, at least in, in uh, collectively, than the standard deduction. Well, not just your, but remember, it's not just charitable. So that you have to have the the categories that are included to get you above the standard deduction. Right. All it doesn't mean that you have to give more than you know twenty seven seven to charity as a couple. It means that your tax, your again, your your state income taxes, your mortgage interest, that your charity, that those all those things together add up to more than the standard deduction. Now there are there are ways to give to charity, and there are ways to give to charity depending on how close you are to retirement, right? Absolutely. I think there's two different areas that we should focus on, and that is for people who are older, one of the big complaints I get on my podcast and my radio show is, you know, this required minimum distribution, it stinks. What is that? It's the IRA account that you have that you dutifully put away free tax money year after year after year of your work life. And then as soon as you reach a certain age, the government requires you to take money out. So you're in your 70s and the government's like, hey, you have to take a certain amount of money out of your retirement account. And the thing that's kind of interesting about this is that this can push people into different tax brackets. It can make your Medicare planning a little bit more difficult. There are a lot of people who say, I don't need the money from this account, and they'd like something to do with it. The beautiful thing that you can do with it is create what's called a qualified charitable distribution. This allows you to take up to $100,000. I know that's a huge amount, but it's up to $100,000 directly from your IRA and divert it to a public charity, okay, without having to include that distribution in your taxable income. This is a huge benefit for older Americans who don't need the money from their retirement accounts. And it's kind of cool. So you don't have to itemize to do this. You could just be somebody who's like, hey, I have a bunch of money in my IRA or I really don't need the money this year. And you can divert it. And it's a really wonderful tool for charitable giving. And Jill also has a warning if you're looking around for new charities to give to. Every year at this time, I get a note from the IRS that says, please do stories about how many scams there are. Isn't that a bummer? But I have to do it. So here is my, my reminder to you. 
When you get a solicitation from a charitable organization, sometimes the name of that organization can seem awfully familiar, but it's not exactly the right name. And so if you hear, you know, the blankety blank cancer, da, 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 like there's something that sort of sounds like the American Cancer Society, but it's not. Be careful. Make sure you read everything. Don't click on anything. And if you're not sure about the charity, do not donate over the phone. Do not give anyone your credit card or other personal information and don't type it into a browser. Go directly to the irs.gov website. Check out their tax-exempt organization search tool. It just says, is this really a charity? Is it, you know, because sometimes, again, it can sound so close, but it's not. So be defensive and make sure that you're not handing over your valuable personal information. I see. So if it's... The American Cancer Social Club instead of the American Cancer Society. Um, yes, but you know, you're look, if you're on your phone and you get a text or something comes up, I can understand we make these mistakes all the time, and it's like for the best cause ever. But just go slow. Don't don't go crazy clicking and and giving money away. But again, you're saying there's an IRS website which has is which is the authoritative list of eligible uh, tax deductions. Exactly. Well, it has. Listen, this is. The way that you can say that, you know, Dave and Jill's charity, is it on the tax exempt organization tool? It, 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 do they really exist? That's the word you're really trying to find out. Uh, answer, no, there is no such thing as Dave and Jill's no, charity. No, but we so could form one. Yeah, but nobody really should give anything to it. <laughs> not yet. Not until we get our tax ID number and start giving our money away. That's true. CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Morning news. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. If you get those regular calls from the Blood Donation Center, you know there's always a call for blood, and in particular, O negative. But what if there was a way to turn other types of blood into O negative? Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So it sounds like there's been some uh, progress on this. Well. The problem is, is that, you know, both nationally and frankly, internationally, there are blood supply shortages. And so, you know, the scientific community has looked at a different approach to trying to achieve uh, laboratory made universal donor blood. There have been attempts at making artificial blood. But what the most recent research is doing is trying to actually convert blood from one blood group to another. So basically, there's four blood group types. There's type A blood, B blood, O blood, and type AB blood. And what differentiates these bloods is that they're all red blood cells, but they have different sugar molecules or carbohydrates on their surface that make them different. So type A has uh, certain sugars that are different than type B, and type both type A and type B have sugar molecules that are different than type O, but O has one that's common to all three. What happens is that type O blood is actually a universal blood donor type. It can be given to people that are type A or type B or type AB. And so what scientists are trying to do is convert 
the sugars on the surface of the blood or basically remove the sugars that are the type A sugars and type B sugars to convert the blood into type O. Now, it is a little bit more complicated than that because there's also a protein on the surface of some blood cells called the rhesus protein, and that's what makes us positive or negative. People who have the rhesus protein, the RH protein, are RH positive, but people who don't have it are RH negative. So ultimately, the goal would be to also remove this protein from the surface of the cell and create blood that is truly universal, which is type O negative blood, which is actually a relatively uncommon blood type, but it is what's used in most emergency transfusions. So it sounds like this is a way to take all different blood types and homogenize them into one universal uh, donor supply. That's exactly right. In, in the United States, it's actually estimated that between 1% and 8% of people are O negative, but that's the universal donor type. Uh, however, 37 to 53% of people are O positive. So if you could remove the rhesus protein from those people, you could make them O negative and they would be universal donors. And then if you take it a step further, if you can take people who are A or B or AB and remove the carbohydrate and the protein, then you would create this you know, universal blood supply, which would be fantastic and would solve a lot of problems. Right. So have they done a back of the napkin calculation? And if you were able to take the AB donors and basically homogenize them all, I, I imagine that would go a long way towards solving the shortage then. Well, it would. Again, there are there are always times, and they're oftentimes seasonal. Actually, you know, around Christmas time and whatnot, where um, there's actually less blood donation, so there can be a need for increased blood donation of all blood types. But it would certainly uh, relieve the the pressure and the burden that exists with specific blood types if you had a universal donor. Now, the problem is, is what they don't know is what will happen to the blood cells themselves once they actually uh, are able to uh, scrub them of their sugars and, uh, and and their proteins. And it's not known if the red cells will, will function as well. It's also not known if they'll be more fragile. Will they survive? I mean, will it actually work? You may be able to actually remove the sugars, remove the proteins, and create an O-negative blood cell, but will the cell be functional? And that won't be known until they're able to ultimately go uh, into clinical trials. Right. So what what is being learned from this, can that be applied to making something that is just outright uh, a type of blood that's built from scratch in the lab and still is effective? Well, the, the problem is and that that has been worked on literally for a few decades. And there have been molecules that have sort of worked, but nothing has really come into play as an actual blood substitute as of yet. That's really the sort of the holy grail of all this is that if you could create an artificial blood substitute, all those risks would go away. You would lose the risk of having a blood transfusion reaction. You would lose the risk of transmitting an infection, and you would have something that worked effectively. I mean, that really is the holy grail, but it's just yet to be fulfilled. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Let's get a closer perspective on what's happening in the war in Gaza from CBS's Linda Gradstein, who's in Jerusalem. And I asked Linda about the possibility that the hostage release over the weekend could lead to a longer ceasefire. Well, the first three days have gone pretty well. Um, there was a delay in the second day of several hours, and Israel accused Hamas of psychological warfare. Um, and the entire country has been, you know, following and, and just 
so happy to see, especially the children who've been released. Um, you know, people are, you know, actually crying as they watch these hostage releases live, as they watch them reunited with their families. However, the last agreed upon release, which was supposed to be today, seems to have hit a snag. Um, Israel says it has the list, but that it's uh, negotiating. It's still not sure what's going on. Um, so there seems to be a little bit of, um, uh, you know, not sure exactly what's going on and some questions about this fourth group of hostages who are due to be released today. I heard that there was some talk of extending this uh, even further as long as Hamas continued to release hostages. So uh, is this an indication that, that both sides are sobering up and this could be a longer ceasefire, or do you expect the, the shooting to resume fairly quickly? It's really not clear. I mean, the Egyptians are saying that they're close to getting an agreement on extending the ceasefire. Hamas has said it's interested in extending it. Uh, the four days have meant that, you know, a lot of humanitarian aid that was incredibly needed has gotten into Gaza. Kind of people can breathe. They're not worried about Israeli airstrikes and things like that. At the same time, and Israel has said that if Hamas agrees for every 10 hostages, Israel will free another 30 Palestinian prisoners and extend the ceasefire by one day. That said, uh, it's not clear how many of the hostages are still alive. There are still some children missing, and apparently the reports are that 10 children are being, including an infant who's 10 months old, is being held by another group that's not uh, Hamas. And the idea of the ceasefire was that Hamas was supposed to be able to look for these people and find them and, and take them back from these other groups. So uh, it, it's really not clear at this point. It could be extended by a day or two at the same point. At the same time, Israel is saying that it uh, has a lot of uh, military goals in terms of really making sure that Hamas can never uh, represent a military threat again to Israel that have not been uh, achieved yet. And it intends to go back to the fighting. Sorry, I was just going to say the fighting has up until now been mostly in the northern Gaza Strip. Now, the southern Gaza Strip, where the vast majority of Gazans have fled, uh, is still has a lot of tunnels and still has thousands of Hamas uh, uh, gunmen, apparently. So there. So Israel's goal is unchanged. They are going they're still intending to eradicate Hamas whenever this truce ends. Right. Israel says that it has two goals. One is to eradicate Hamas as a military power, not necessarily to completely eradicate Hamas and to get all of the hostages out. Um, at the same time, I think Israel realizes that the more time that passes and as the ceasefire is extended, there will be more pressure on Israel not to restart the fighting. We're hearing from Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem and presumably during this pause, whatever is left of Hamas has been hiding in that huge complex of tunnels. So what does Israel do next. Right. Although Israel has said that in this conflict, it's using new kinds of weapons that are able to, uh, you know, seal up the tunnels and that they found a lot of the tunnels in northern Gaza and destroyed them. So they say that they will uh, do the same in southern Gaza. The question is, where is the population supposed to go? You know, Gaza has 2.3 million people. About half of them were living in the north and almost all of them have fled the north and gone to the south. 
south, which Israel told them to do, to be safe. Now there's really, the north is, large areas of the north are destroyed. So where are these people supposed to go as it's getting cold and rainy as well? Today there's a rainstorm all over. Um, and so you just think of these people who really have nowhere to go. UN facilities are just sort of not able to accept all of those people. So I think Israel feels that if it stops now, Hamas kind of remains in control of Gaza, and that's something that it doesn't want. I saw that New York Times piece about one family's experience during this siege where uh, one of the family members, his only job now, eight hours a day, is to fetch water to fill the water tanks because there's no electricity, there's no water, there's no food. And uh, this is being, of course, repeated hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, that seems to be the makings of a humanitarian disaster unless something changes quickly. Yes, although, again, in these past four days, large amounts, huge amounts of international aid have gotten in. That is going to kind of help the situation. And my understanding is, at least in the south of Gaza, there was water. Uh, Israel had turned off the water in the north, but not in the south. Um, But still, I mean, I've talked to people in Gaza who say that basically, you know, all they're worried about now is trying to survive. Right. So it sounds like this truth uh, that I know hope springs eternal, but this is not the end of the war is what you're telling us. It does not seem that way. Um, again, you know, every, the situation is so dynamic, but, you know, what we're hearing over and over again is that Israel has, you know, uh, agreed to a temporary ceasefire, but not a permanent one. And that if it stops now, it will just leave Hamas in power. CBS's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Now for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Paisley's parents discovered their daughter's love for soft rock legend Michael McDonald and surprised her with concert tickets. Well, CBS's Steve Hartman has the story of how that heartfelt meeting led to an exclusive show invite beyond those front row seats. While most tweens in America are fawning over Bieber, Swift and Styles. 11-year-old Paisley Gardner of Des Moines, Iowa has a different idol, a singer she kept hearing on the radio. Sounds like an angel somehow. Sounds like an angel. Yeah. What? Huh? Like, okay, well, that's kind of odd. As we first reported a few months ago, parents Tony and Jessica say they didn't know what to think when their daughter became obsessed with the voice of that 70s soft rock legend, Michael McDonald. They say Paisley was smitten. Without an image of who this person was. So one day she Googled a picture of Michael McDonald and she came running up the stairs and flailed herself on the bed and was like, no, no. Her pop star turned out to be a grand pop. I just had to deal with it, but it's okay. She really didn't care. So one day, her dad surprised her with concert tickets. You want to go see him? Yes. Let's go. I almost screamed. You did scream. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. McDonald is on tour with the Doobie Brothers. I love you, Michael! Paisley says she was the youngest fan in the audience by a generation and the only one who actually got to talk to McDonald. Sort of. He said thank you to me. That was it. He said thank you. And that he was enough you. for her. But he looked at me in the eye and said thank you. After my visit, I reached back out to Paisley, and we talked about how cool it would be to have a real chat with him. 
the odds of that happening would be very, very slim. Or maybe not. What's that? Wait a second, what? How are you, darling? What? It's okay, sweetie. Eventually, Paisley recovered for a nice conversation and an even nicer invitation. We'll have you see the show from backstage, maybe. How's that? <laughs> Not long after we first told this story, Michael McDonald made good on his promise. We're going this weekend. Wait, what? Oh my goodness. It was every fangirl's dream come true. How are you? It's so encouraging to have a nice young fan like this, you know. The perfect gift for the girl who learned there's so much more to music appreciation than hair color. Steve Hartman, CBS News, on the road. And now, from the G and Ursula show, which starts at 9 o'clock, here is G. Scott. So, uh, Thanksgiving, uh, the Thanksgiving game, Seahawks. Um, was that just a bad day? Was it a short turnaround? Or is there something fundamentally wrong? The San Francisco 49ers at this time are just a better team than the Seattle Seahawks. And it was very clear and evident on Thursday, on Thanksgiving Day. That first half was so ugly. It was so ugly. Like, it was at a point where in the first quarter, the Seattle Seahawks' total yards was less than 10 yards total, Mm. while the San Francisco 49ers had 150-plus. In the first half of that game, the Niners had 92 yards rushing. The Seahawks had 18 I'm giving these stats out, and here's why. When the other team can run the football better than you, chances are you're not going to win. That's at the college level, and that's at the pro level. At this present time, the San Francisco 49ers can run the ball really, really well. They have this guy by the name of Christian McCaffrey. And because of their able, the ability to run that way, when they have pl- when they have play action, meaning when they fake the handoff, it makes the linebackers in the defense actually want to come up and respect the run, which usually leaves their tight ends and wide receivers in their crossing routes wide open. I said all of that stuff to just say this, um, like Whoopi Goldberg told Demi Moore in the movie Ghost, you in trouble, girl. Obscure <laughs> <laughs> reference, but perfect. So, yeah, thank so you. So you're just saying the 49ers are a better team and our team struggled, right but as right they head to Dallas to play the Cowboys, mm. you're still hopeful that this is this yeah, season yeah, I'm, still I'm, on. I'm, I'm hopeful. And this is the reason why I gave y'all that Demi Moore, I mean, that uh, Whoopi Goldberg to Demi Moore, you in trouble, girl. Because the Seattle Seahawks are traveling to a Dallas Cowboy team that is eight and three and hot as fish grease right now. And what I mean by hottest fish grease, they have not lost a home game since week four of last season. Their quarterback, Dak Prescott, is really good right now. Their defense right now, led by former Seahawks defensive coordinator Dan Quinn, they're rocking and rolling. So this is one of those buckle up buttercup types games, Dave. They're going <laughs> to have to go there and really pull this one out. Because they travel down to Dallas, right, for Thursday night game. And then the next week, they have to go back on the road. And guess where they're going, y'all? San Francisco. 
San Francisco yeah, to play the 49ers again. Revenge. Let's go get them. <laughs> right? And then, so, and then it's the Philadelphia Eagles who are 10 and 1 now. Come on, man. <laughs> right? Come on. This is, this is real. Hey, hey, at, least, at least we're the same as the Broncos, 6 and 5, right? Oh. Now, right? Wow. That's I'm gauging it now. That's not what we want. That's not, that's not, yeah, that's not what we want. Did you catch mm-hmm. the Apple Cup, too? I did. I did catch the Apple Cup. Congratulations to all Husky fans. First of all, I just want to say that that Apple Cup was an incredible game, mm-hmm. right? It was absolutely incredible. Um, the Huskies pulled that off, especially after that fourth down and one, them going for it on the, oh my goodness, I could not believe they went for it, but they did, went forward and pulled it out and won that game. So Apple Cup, congratulations to the Huskies. They got a big game on Friday at five o'clock in Las Vegas for the Pac-12 championship. And the Apple Cup, by the way, will survive, right? Yes, it will. That's good news, right? I think everybody's happy yes. about the Apple Cup surviving. Uh, what's going to happen is is uh, I think they're going to be playing at Lumen Field. I think they're on contract for the next three to four years, I, I believe. So I think that's exciting. I think that that keeping that tradition going would be huge. I think it is good for all Cougs and Husky fans alike. Uh, be, before yes. we go, how was you guys Thanksgiving? Was it good? Yep. It was awesome. What was the best? What was the one thing? What's your one meal that you had that you like? Mm, 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 mm. That was real good. I'm a what? stuffing person. Doesn't have to be fancy. I like stovetop. <laughs> it's yummy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dave, we had the double dessert: uh, chocolate pecan pie and apple crisp, Ooh. and it was fantastic. Nice. That does. Didn't you sound make the apple crisp? Mm, I I believe I bought the apples. Oh, okay. <laughs> You contributed. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds good. Uh, well, I just got to tell you, my, my takeaway from Thanksgiving is that taste of that uh, game at Lumen Field. I yeah. can't get that taste out of my mouth. See you yeah. guys. Take care. Thanks, G. Right now, time for Crime and Punishment. Every Monday, we check in with Casey McNurthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. And this week, I asked Casey for an update on domestic violence cases in the county. He told me about a program, because the question here is, they have the, an enforcement program, of course. I mean, you, you get... Uh, convicted, you get put away. But does that help prevent domestic violence? Well, here's what the prosecutor's office is doing. There was an event that happened just before Thanksgiving. And it was pretty cool. There's a woman, her name is Shelley Hunsinger, a day and CISO. And her job is to be the training coordinator for the Protection Order Advocacy Program. And basically what that means is trying to help people before uh, a case ends up on her desk or or before someone hurts others or themselves. And, and so what she did is she teamed up with a friend of hers who uh, is a, a female pastor at a local church, and they worked together on this event just for clergy and for people who are other pastors who uh, very often you'll have people in domestic violence situations go to their church leader first. And they said, hey, here's some trends that we're noticing You know that you may not realize aren't actually the right things to do. And, and, and they taught this, this eight-hour course completely in Spanish. And having someone speak to you in your native language really makes such a difference. And, and she talked about that and seeing how much of a difference that made. But basically said, you know, here are some patterns that we're seeing. You know, I asked her, you know, why is it important to do something like this? And here's how she explained it. What we know about domestic violence is that most people don't turn first to agencies or to systems. They turn first to people in their immediate circle um, who they admire or who they trust, um, people close to them. For a lot of people of faith, those people are their pastors or someone in their church. 
And unfortunately, when you don't know, when you don't have experience with domestic violence, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of myths out there and a lot of things that people think are being helpful um, are actually really either painful or, or, or damaging to survivors to hear or at worst could even be dangerous advice. Yes, yeah, she was saying some of the counselors actually gave the wrong advice. Yeah, and one of the things that's pretty common to say is, you know, hey, just give the person one more chance and, and you know, just forgive them and you need to go back to them. And one of the actual uh, feedback responses that, that she received, and she shared this with us, was there was a church leader who said, I didn't realize that that could actually end it in someone's death and I've been saying that for years and so yeah and and she was saying how powerful that was to to, to help show somebody that of, of you know and because unfortunately on the other side we see cases every month where people do go back and it leads to another assault uh, or possibly a death and you know occasional cases or some cases but I asked Shelly too you know what if there's somebody who's listening to this who is uh, someone who has had a friend or a family member maybe over the holidays say, hey, I'm in a situation like this, what should I do? What advice would you give them? And here's how she answered that. At this point, if someone's listening and they are in a domestic violence situation, I feel like a really good um, place to start is by calling King County's DD Hope Line. Um, the DD Hope Line has trained advocates who can listen and kind of help figure out what's going on. They can make referrals to all of the domestic violence agencies in King County. We have quite a few agencies who have, um, who are either primarily focused on providing domestic violence services or may have a domestic violence department or a gender-based violence department. Um, and so the DV Hope Line can refer folks to those agencies um, if they're needing, you know, just to, talk about domestic violence in, in general. Um, if folks are interested in a civil protection order, they can always contact um, the Prosecuting Attorney's Office Protection Order Advocacy Program, and they can speak with an advocate about whether a protection order is a good option for them, what that might look like, kind of demystify that process, answer any questions, and receive help um, filing for one if they meet our program service criteria. And so that's called the DV Hope Line. Yes, yeah, exactly. And you just Google that, you know. And if anybody has questions or you know wants to hear that, hear that again, then you reach out to me or our office. And there's there's lots of people who can who can get them to the right places. And the other topic that comes up frequently on our crime and punishment uh, features is stolen vehicles. It just seems out of control, especially when it comes to Kias and Hyundai's, which are still being used on a regular basis for these. Smashing grabs. You know, I can't remember the last time that I saw a juvenile case or even an adult case uh, that didn't involve a Kia or a Honda. Yeah, they're, 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 you hear about it. It's it's, almost, it's so predictable. Um, and and the short answer is, King County prosecutors are charging those cases every day of stolen vehicles or vehicle prowls, in part because they're the most common crimes. You know, and the numbers when you look through the end of October this year of new cases have gone up. Um, both on, on the adult side and the juvenile side of, of filed cases. Last year on the adult side, for example, there were 660 through the end of October. Uh, and, and this year it's up to 702, so it's going to surpass last year. Wow. So um, that's almost two a day. Yeah, yeah. And those are just the cases that are, are sent to us with the evidence to prove it. And, you know, there are certainly more reports of it. Natalie Swaby over at King 5 did a, a, a great story where she talked to Ann Davison, the Seattle City attorney, about the problem with Hondas and, and Kias. Um, here's a clip from, from her report. 
There's no way this is a victimless crime. Some, some of the incidents that I know were actual assaults on elderly people to take their Kia or Hyundai at that moment. In Seattle, from 2021 to 2022, thefts of Hyundais increased by 363% and Kias by 503%. Our last numbers and data show that of August of 2023, three-fourths of the vehicles that were stolen are of these manufacturers. Right now, there's a lawsuit at the city level uh, that's ongoing. Uh, and here's another clip from that King 5 report uh, with details on that. And the response when Natalie said, hey, you know, to the car manufacturer, why didn't you just fix this in the first place? I was the first to file suit for the city of Seattle. That was in January. Since then, 16 more government agencies across the country have joined in, suing the automaker in federal court. I think the right thing to do is to recall these vehicles and install that anti-theft technology. Why didn't Kia just install this in the first place? Well, I can't speak to that. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not in the product planning department. I don't know what, what the decisions were and how they were rendered. But I can tell you that all Kia vehicles, including any of the vehicles that are part of this issue, meet and exceed all federal standards and mandates at this point. But by looking at the data, it was clear to me that this was becoming a burden on our police officers and on taxpayers. So what's your gut feeling on this? Is the manufacturer actually going to take action and do something about this? Because this is this can't just be happening here. No, absolutely not. Uh, and I, I sure hope so. You know, because we're not seeing this with Hondas. We're not seeing it with Mercedes or other vehicles. If it was as easy to steal those other vehicles, then the city attorney wouldn't have needed to file that that suit. And it was important that she did that. And it was, it was I think she's right that it is a benefit to people here to, to say, hey, you know, we can see the numbers because the data is pretty striking when you see that graph of, of how fast it it increased with that TikTok trend. Casey McNerthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.